You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. For Dexter Styles, the existence of an obscure truth recessed behind an obvious one and emanating through it allegorically was mesmerizing. It was what had first intrigued him at age 15 about the two men who came every third Monday to see his father at his Coney Island restaurant. Another man came less often, always in brand new spats, a red handkerchief gushing from his breast pocket. Dexter's father always went behind the bar to pour this man's brandy rather than have the barkeep do it. The blank face his pop wore after these visitations betrayed humiliation and anger, and Dexter knew better than to ask what they meant. But he was drawn to the men, a smoldering of dim feeling behind their eyes, a heaviness to their hands when they gave him a pat or a swat. He curried their favor, refilling their glasses, lingering at their tables when his father wasn't watching. They took notice of him gradually with a mute animal awareness. Later, when men who'd fought the Great War returned, Dexter recognized in their fractured gazes and somnolent movements something of what he'd first admired in Mr. Q's men. By then, he knew what it meant, intimacy with violence. Jennifer Egan is the author of The Invisible Circus, which is made into a movie starring Cameron Diaz. Look at me, a National Book Award finalist. The Keep, Emerald City, a collection of short stories. A Visit from the Goon Squad, which won the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Critics Circle Award. Her new novel is Manhattan Beach. Thank you for joining me, Jennifer. Thank you. This is a book that you've been living with for a long time, and I wonder if you'd just talk about... When you start to write a historical novel and immerse yourself in the research, how do you keep track of what you want to use and what you want to discard in, from your research? Well, in a way, I couldn't do that because I, I start a book without any idea of the characters or the plot. I just start with a time and a place, kind of some worlds that feel attractive to me. And therefore, in this case, the, the, the difference between this and my other books was only that the world I was attracted to was outside of my lifetime. I really found myself drawn to New York during World War II, having no idea what that really meant, but thinking I wanted to use a kind of noir approach. So really, it was an atmosphere that I was interested in. And this was way back in like 2005 when I was writing The Keep. I started looking at images of New York during the war, and what really struck me was that there was water in almost every picture, as if the edges of the city were where all the action was, as opposed to the middle of it. And that's a huge difference um, from the present. So I found myself thinking, well, of course, it's a port, the port of New York. That's why New York exists. What was the port of New York like during World War II? And so in a certain sense, the, the water itself led me into various different worlds that I felt would be important for no more reason than that they gave me a particular kind of excitement that I've learned to identify as a kind of portal into fiction. 
So I followed that excitement very, um, you know, instinctively into the world of shipbuilding at the Brooklyn Navy Yard, deep sea diving, which was a feature of ship repair, the criminal life of the waterfront, which was absolutely rampant, and ultimately merchant sailing. But when I sat down to finally write in 2012, so, you know, seven years after I had first begun kind of meditating on all this, I still had no idea who my characters were or what my plot would be. Well, I, I like this idea of, of world creation. And what struck me as I read this book was that in your last book, A Visit from the Goon Squad, uh, uh, quite a bit of it was set in the future in a world that you have not lived in and you had to build for yourself. And then I, I realized that this book was, you know, a mirror of that, that you had also had... This world was just as foreign to you as the future, in a sense. Yes, but the future is so much easier to write about because <laughs> no one can tell you you're wrong. And but the but the downside is you're quickly superseded. So, for example, the 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 leaps I made to write about the future in Goon Squad all feel very passe to me now, and I, those are not the leaps I would make if I were trying to imagine forward now. Um, with the past, it's, it's, a, it's interesting because, yes, there is a kind of connection there, and yet the challenges are different. In these particular worlds I chose to write about, they are very technical. And, and one thing I found in general is I seem to love to write about people at work. Mm -hmm. I'm really interested <laughs> in people's work lives. I guess I'm revealing myself as a workaholic. Um, but you have to know so much about a kind of work to describe someone doing it with any kind of authority because people who are at work are do are they don't they're not doing the thing for the first time so you can't sort of explain it through their eyes people at work do things by second nature so you have to know it well enough to give it to the reader in a, in that kind of secondhand or or a casual um you know, way. And that is very hard to do unless you really know what you're talking about. So I have all these realms of work in a period that was long before my birth, none of which I knew anything about. And that was very difficult, especially not knowing exactly what I needed to know about any of them because I had no characters and no plot. And so what it meant was that there were sort of two phases of the research. Between 2005 and 2010, I was instinctively and when I had time, because my kids were still little and I was writing other books, I would, I would get involved in various sorts of field trips and adventures that led me into these worlds that felt kind of hot, if you will, that gave me this feeling of, of importance. And then once I sat down to write in 2012, and, and characters began doing things, and then a plot was forming, then I knew more specifically what kinds of things I needed to know, and I continued to research frantically. Um, often I had to do research before I could even write a scene at all. Uh, for example, deep sea diving is just not one of those things you can kind of make up if you've never done it without really talking to divers about what it feels like and in and and this old, now outdated equipment, this 200-pound Mark V diving suit, you know, what exact, what levers you push and pull and twist, you know, how do you get in the water? I mean, these are just basic questions I had to know the answers to. Well, I thought that was, I love this whole part with what they called the 200-pound dress. I thought what you did really well was to internalize 
the world so that you avoided the, the trap with science fiction is often what they call the info dump where the character works well bob the way the light drive works is that and then you get all this technical information that somebody's just glissed from a, a, an article and that's very different from the way people actually said i'm gonna get in the light drive and fly the hell out of here you understand how to have your characters essentially get in the light drive and fly the hell out of there. You know, you've just, you've named exactly the thing that I, uh, that makes it so hard to write about people at work. I was saying second, second hand, but what I really should have said was second nature. If you're writing about someone who is doing something just innately because they do it all the time, mm -hmm. it's, it's very artificial to have them say, Hey Bob, this is how the light drive works because they don't need to do that. They just get in and they drive. So that's where the info dump starts to happen because it's really the writer trying to use the character to explain to the reader what it all means. It, that's really boring. So in order to avoid that, you, the writer have to know it even better. Um, so that was a real challenge, but it, it, and, and what I also found so difficult is that since I don't write about my own life or people I know ever, the one point of connection in the past that I've had to my fiction were times and places for my own life. So for example, in, in A Visit from the Goon Squad, you know, the punk rock moment that I witnessed as a high school student in San Francisco, um, you know, uh, other wow. things about, yes. you know, other times and places that I knew became very handy. You know, New York in the early 1990s when the Internet was first starting to be known of by some people um, and that sort of grunge moment in music. So in this book, that one point of connection that I've always relied on was gone. There were now no times and places from my own memory that I could use. So I think in retrospect, in that first five years, I spent a lot of time interviewing people. Part of it was these were people in their 80s. I mean, this is a period that is fast disappearing from living memory. And I exactly I thought, you know, I can't it, when someone's 85, you don't say, let me just finish this book and then I'll interview you. <laughs> um, and so in a way, with all those anecdotes and little bits of texture and stories that I heard in those five years, it was almost like I created an alternate memory bank that wasn't mine that I could draw on just for little bits of texture and, and, and a sense of, of place and time that I couldn't provide myself. You know, I, I think that in retrospect for you, the time it took to write this book was really necessary. It allowed you to live in the period and live in the character. And what is really fun when I read this book, in many ways, there are lots of like little terms that are, will pop up. I don't know. I've never heard it used that way before. And I, I just think it, it's like, you know, when Mr. Spock says something about Vulcan or something, that's what it was kind of reminding me of. And how also, how easily we are disconnected from our own past. I mean, a past that's still in many ways very present in world events today. Well, I was amazed to think about, I've, to me, World War II was not much different from the Civil War and how <laughs> far away it felt from my own life. But mm -hmm. I was born in 1962, less than 20 years after the war ended. Now, what I, what I, what's really crazy is to think that 
that was as close to my time as the 1990s are to right now. I mean, it, it was amazing. And yet all of it felt so far from me. And one thing that was so thrilling about doing all the research that I did for this book and kind of meditating and thinking about certain issues around the war and let's say women's rights that mm -hmm. I had heard about all my life but hadn't really meant much to me is that I feel like I re-entered my own past growing up in San Francisco in the 1970s with all kinds of technological stuff going on that I wasn't aware of and realizing that that was all a fairly direct result of World War II. The huge migration to the West Coast because of all the industry that was here and even the counterculture. I find myself interested in re-entering sort of my own memories with this new knowledge that I've acquired. Wow, how, <laughs> yeah, you're reimagining your own past, having, having specked out uh, its past. Yes, with much, with more knowledge. It's, it's amazing how different it all seems to me now, understanding the history. You know, we've been talking about the history a lot, but this does not feel like a, a historical novel other than in its setting, because the characters are so vividly imagined and rendered to us, and the language is so beautiful. There are so many paragraphs you could just read out loud and go, wow, this is great, this is wonderful insight into this character. So talk about creating the characters we, we have Anna, Anna Kerrigan and, and her father and Dexter Stiles. I, I, I mean, these are a wonderful gallery. Did you, did you, did they all come at once, or did you like, like make one little step into the world and then invent the people around him? Her. I think you know it's it's that's a, it, char character development is the most mysterious part of the process to me since I. Don't, since I have so few points of reference for my own life and I can't say, oh, well, yeah, there was Uncle Ben. I kind of used a bit of him. No, I don't do any of that. Now, now, let me ask you, is there a reason why that you don't do that? Or is that is that is that a fictional reason, a personal reason? Um, I do it badly. <laughs> oh. I'm just bad at it. It's my real Achilles heel as a writer. Uh -huh. I'm terrible at writing about myself. I can I can do it to a mediocre level, but at best it's good, which is never good enough. Mm. So I just, I seem to need to arrive at, at everything I do in fiction with a sense of surprise at encountering something I've never seen before. And I think during those five years of research into these different worlds that felt promising, I began to sense shadows of, of people of sorts of people that I thought would come along. One was definitely a young woman who ends up working at the Brooklyn Navy Yard. And some of that was just, was suggested to me. I mean, I ended up involved in an oral history project with the Brooklyn Navy Yard and the Brooklyn Historical Society. And I was present for and or actually interviewed some 20 to 25 women in their 80s who had worked at the Navy Yard. Wow. <laughs> and they told amazing stories. I mean, tr and, and there are little fragments of anecdotes from them, and I name all of them in the back, whose, whose little bits and pieces I actually used, but just these wonderful little moments from their own lives and experiences that found their way um, into the book. So one shadow was the sense of a young woman working at a shipyard. I was pretty sure I would want to do that. But I didn't know really who she was. And and then I I had a sense of her father as a a somewhat tortured Irish American guy. And that's there is a little bit of connection to my own life in that my father was very, you know, from a very Irish American family. My grandfather was a cop. 
um, and ultimately a police commander <laughs> and a sometime bodyguard of President Truman when he would come to Chicago. So wow. I could feel all of that history there and my excitement to learn more about that history. And then the third shadow was I knew there would be some sort of gangster figure. And again, that was really suggested by my research because to my surprise, in these oral history interviews and also just any elderly New Yorker with a good memory, I could I even heard of, I was sitting in front of with a recorder. So I was listening to all <laughs> these people talk about their past and their childhoods in New York. And again and again, people would mention gangsters as people they kind of encountered in their daily lives knowing they were gangsters, which really is sort of odd. It is odd. You don't think of, you know, you know, I don't run into a lot of people that I know to be gangsters, but this was sort of like a job description in, in, the, in the sort of 20s, 30s, and 40s. Mm -hmm. And what I realized as I pursued it was that it really resulted directly from prohibition. You know, alcohol was illegal, 1919 to 1933. Crime, organized crime got organized to take over the liquor business. And everyone still wanted to drink. So the gangster figure became kind of folded into polite society or mainstream society in a way that seems very strange to us now. And that lingered even after Prohibition when many, when a lot of nightlife was still run in former speakeasies by people with, you know, mob associations. So I love the thought of a, a criminal, a sort of gangster figure who was also legitimate and kind of working with that. So I knew certain things about Dexter Styles and loved, about it. He's so much fun to read. He is a blast. He was really fun to write, I have to say. <laughs> do, you, do you know his, his original last name? No. You know, that's, well, we, yes, obviously Styles is a made up name, which is another thing, again, that I found so often in my research, especially among the world of criminals with who wanted to have certain ethnic associations. So you had Italian guys who started calling themselves O'Brien to, to run with the Irish, Irish guys calling themselves, you know, Mangione to fit in with the Italians. So it, it's such an American thing that goes way back. But he, so he says a couple of times that he has an unpronounceable last name, but I think if I had known what the name was, I would have told the reader. Generally, I don't know much more than I if I if I don't say it, I probably didn't know it. You know, I I, I thought that when you were talking about the way gangsters are kind of folded into everyday life, and that I thought that was really well done, and I love the way that uh, you worked with Styles and showed kind of the the genteel aspect of this because at it was such a transitionary time for the crime business. I mean, it was the, the time between, as you say, between prohibition and between what ultimately became, I guess, the drug dealing, super violent uh, people who followed. And I thought that Dexter does such a great job of like straddling that world and, and we really like him. Yeah, well, that was another thing that was so fascinating. Of course, once the, the, that income stream of, of you know, selling booze <laughs> dried up, there suddenly there were these huge associations who did who needed a new income stream. And that really is what ultimately pushed organized crime into these much more heavy duty 
modes of, of making money, you know, drugs, prostitution, things became much bloodier. Um, so there were, I mean, Dexter Styles is definitely not based on, on a real person, but there were these figures, like one I'm thinking of is a guy named Frank Costello, who happened to live in the same apartment building as a genteel New Yorker I interviewed, who was telling me about some of the people in the fancy building he grew up in. You know, an actress, a banker, Frank Costello. Yeah, he was a gangster, um, you know. And so Frank Costello was, I think, I, I have no idea what kinds of heinous acts he committed, but my sense of him, and maybe I was just inventing Dexter Styles, was as someone who maybe didn't want to move into that next bloodier phase, uh, especially as some of these people were, you know, middle-aged by then. You know, who wants to start <laughs> dealing heroin when they've been, you know, at, at, you know, at fun nightclubs distributing booze to happy customers? I mean, that's a whole different kettle of fish. That's a plunge down <laughs> that from which one does not recover. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I thought that, uh, I love the, the way that Anna, when when she uh, decides to start diving, I thought that that is such a, an amazing scene. Uh, and I had to ask, did you get to put on a two hundred pound dress? I did. I, um, I, I could tell it. It just felt so authentic. Well, I've never scuba dived. I'm mm -hmm. actually really afraid to. Um, but I did in even before, long before I started writing, one of my, like I guess, field trips, I would call it, was to a reunion of Army diver veterans. So these are um, people who were diving. There was actually one World War II diver who attended. They, they have a reunion every other year, this association of veteran Army divers. They're very tight-knit and very organized. So I attended in 2009 in Virginia, and one of the things they offer as an attraction to attendees, um, the veterans who come, is the chance to wear the old heavy gear, which is wow. called the Mark V, with the you know spherical helmet, the lead belt, all those features that I think are sort of I iconic. It's like a oh, absolutely, like it's a spacesuit almost. It's in everybody's aquarium. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like keeping exactly. the goldfish company. Exactly, and um, and they can dive in a tank wearing mm -hmm. that old equipment. And actually, that equipment remained current into the '60s. So even guys who were or Vietnam vets actually wore the gear and even later people wore it for training mm -hmm. so um, so that I was I did um, get two men served as my tenders because every diver in this gear has two tenders to dress right. him or her um, which really is more like having machinery assembled around you than getting <laughs> dressed in the manner we think of it um, and then they're responsible for keeping the diver alive while he or she dives. So my two pals, who, had, who were both Vietnam vets, vets who were kind of guiding me through all this, were my tenders and dressed me in the, um, in the dress. They never call it a suit. Um, and one, and it, was, it was, of course, fascinating and very painful to wear <laughs> 200 pounds. It, it, sound, it doesn't sound that bad. It was awful. It was so painful. But in a way, what it, what it gave me, I think I could have made that up, I guess is what I'm saying. I think I could have imagined that sufficiently. But what I maybe wouldn't have thought of was the unexpected kind of domestic intimacy that I felt with my tenders who were dressing me. And at first it was kind of uncomfortable because these were people I'd interviewed and you know we had a sort of business-like <laughs> relationship. And suddenly I'm standing there in a pair of long underwear and they're... <laughs> dressing me they're like handling me 
And I, I thought, oh, this is, this is awkward. This feels strange. But then I realized that to them, it was not even slightly awkward or strange because this is what they did for years and years and years, their whole career. And once I settled into it, there was something very comforting about, about that physical connection, which contained the reassurance that they were taking care of me. And had I dived, which I obviously didn't, that would have continued. And divers alternate between diving and tending. And that feeling, that unexpected intimacy, is something that actually ended up being fairly important in the plot. But I would never have thought of it or known of it, I don't think, if I hadn't had that experience. Uh, I love the plot of this book because it's a page turner and it has that really nice noir feel. But it it does not move from without. It moves from within the characters. And I think that that's so important, and that's what really makes it powerful and compelling uh, in pairing with your prose. But So I'm wondering if um, when you created the characters, did they create the plot for you, or did you kind of... Put them into the plot, or did you know what you were, where you were going to go? I had no idea where I was going to go, and in fact, as with as has been the case with other books of mine, including The Keep, which is a very tightly plotted gothic thriller. Not only did I not where, know where things were going to go, but I labored under huge misconceptions as I worked, which end up, I think, working to my advantage because since I don't know what is going to happen. It's difficult. There's kind of it's it's hard for the reader to know. Mm-hmm. I, the reader remains in my state of ignorance. <laughs> right, 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 right. So it's a little. I, I'm not sure how to. What would be a good analogy? But I think it's something like improv in the theater. Mm-hmm. In that I I start with a time with a place and a time. People seem to show up immediately, and then they start saying and doing things, and that becomes the plot, and. This, of course, is a very, you know, a kind of blind way to work, but my first drafts are all about achieving a certain kind of blindness that helps me get the best story that I can out of myself, and then I get very analytical and hone and shape and rewrite it for years. But I write fiction always by hand. I have really messy handwriting, (laughs) and I, I sort of can't see what I'm writing as I write it, in the way that I would if I were looking at a screen, let's say, okay. where the temptation to read and fix is constant. Oh, sure. Um, You're always self-editing. Yeah. So I can't really do that with 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 uh, a first draft of writing fiction. Wow, that's I only read back over the day before, and I try to write five to seven pages a day. I read the day before just to remember what, <laughs> what, what the hell I was doing. Then I re-enter the flow, and I keep writing, and then I, I won't look again at something after I, after the next day. In the case of Manhattan Beach, that meant a 1,400-page first draft of handwritten pages, oh which took God. a year and a half. And so in the court, of course, it's a huge mess. I mean, I don't want to make it sound like I write something coherent. I really don't. I blunder my way through... I make mistakes. I, there are a lot of dead pages, but hopefully, in the course of that, I have like, I've somehow kind of pushed my way through a plot that has the kinds of unexpected twists and turns that I can't come up with just sitting in a chair. And so that's where I make my big discoveries about what happens. It's like you find a 
you create a world, but you don't define it so tightly that you, when you go out, you can actually still explore it. Very much so. And that's you know, an interesting because you think about world building, and, and you think, okay, I'm going to build this world to to fit the plot and the characters. But for you, it's the other way around. It is. And it reminds me a lot, like I have a son who loves D&D and Mm -hmm. gaming. And there's something that is sort of similar about that in certain ways in that they create situations, but then what actually happens in the situation is spontaneous to a certain degree. Mm -hmm. That's how it feels for me too. What I'm led through it by more than anything are further times and places and worlds that I sense ahead of me. So, for example, I knew I wanted to get Anna into the water as a diver. Sure. That turned out to be incredibly difficult because I knew enough about the period and and I had done enough research and, and just knew enough about what I was talking about that I couldn't credibly get anyone to let her dive. So when she keeps trying, you know, she there's a test, you have to pass the test. I thought, oh, good, when she passes the test, they'll let her dive. But when I was writing it, I couldn't make that credibly happen. Quite the contrary. She passes the test, and they still won't let her dive. And this happened two or three times to the point where I thought, I'm not sure I can get this woman in the water. I'm not sure it's going to happen. But it was out there ahead of me as a kind of goal. And the same was true. There's a crucial scene that happens on a beach where Anna and her disabled younger sister are brought to a particular beach by Dexter Styles, and they have this experience there. Once again, I had a sense that I was moving toward that beach. I wanted them to get there, and I, I couldn't for the life of me figure out how to do it. I have to find a way for the action to take me there, but it's the place that's drawing me. Later in the book, there's an illegal dive in New York Harbor where an unlikely cast of characters, I don't even want to say who, it, uh, for fear of giving things away, is, is diving for a dead body in wartime in a totally controlled harbor. And I thought, how am I going to make this? How am I going to get, who would do it? And I, I, I remember talking to my diver gurus, these same two guys who dressed me and thinking, oh, now I have to ask them the terrible thing, whether they would ever, in a million years, I set up the situation for them. Okay, it's very risky. These guys have a lot to lose. They could be thrown in jail. But, you know, would they go on this illegal dive to find a dead body? And there was a pause and they said, hell Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I realized, oh yeah, these are people who like risks. Okay, I've got my. Actually, this is not as hard. This is not as hard to persuade people that they would do this as I had thought. <laughs> you know, one of the things that uh, you talked about the beach and diving water. The power of water infuses this book, and water is such a, a symbol of the of. You know, the limits. One, I suffer from a bit of neuropathy. So I'm always thinking about, I actually have to think about where my body ends. I have to kind of remember that it ends here and not some other place, like here or there. That's fascinating. (laughs) So, but, I mean, that, what this book spoke to me of was like that, the power of those limits where... uh, where we end, where our lives end, where the land ends and where the water starts. And the water is so unknowable yet so obvious. And I think you do such a good job of using that kind of imagery throughout the book in many ways to to get to, I guess, what happens when we encounter our own limits. 
Well, that's it's it's interesting. I mean, I think my my fascination with water really dates back to growing up in San Francisco, honestly. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a place where you cannot but be aware of water all the time because of all the elevation. You know, New York is surrounded by water too, but you don't think about it nearly as often because you just don't see it. There aren't mm-hmm. the hills. So I think I, I'm, there's a lot, water plays a really important part in almost every one of my books, interestingly, including mm-hmm. Goon Squad. Someone drowns in the same body of water that I'm writing about in Manhattan Beach, which is kind of fascinating. In the keep, you know, a, a circular moldering swimming pool plays a very important role and so on. Um, in this case, as I said, I didn't think I was going to be writing about water until I started looking at images of New York during the war. And then I realized I was definitely going to be writing about the water in a very direct way and exploring it from every angle. At first, I thought, I'm just interested in the edges where water meets land. You know, that's what a shipyard is all about. Then when I was drawn into the diving with that feeling of heat there, that that was going to be important, I thought, oh, this is even better. Now I'm going to go under the water. But then as I I was working on that 1,400-page draft, I began to have a terrible intimation that I was in fact going to also go to sea in the book. And in a way, of course, it was inevitable. I was going to just do the edges and underneath and not the middle. No, but the... you're not going to do ridership about shipyards yeah, without I going mean, on come a on. ship. Someone has to go to sea, but I was terrified because I knew I was looking at at least another year. I mean, the amount of, you know, merchant sailing, anything to do with wartime shipping, there's a huge amount of information out there about that stuff. So... I just knew that it was going to be a tall order to write credibly about life on a ship when I knew almost nothing about that and have hardly ever even sailed. But in the end, it was thrilling um, to do that. And I think one reason, I mean, another big worry I had was, okay, so now this is turning into a sea story. That's a very different genre from the noir. Can I really fuse those two? One is so much about the natural world. The other is so urban. But what I realized is that, in fact, the two genres are almost exactly analogous. In both cases, you have a pocket of sort of warm humanity surrounded by uh, existential dread. In the noir, (laughs) it's created by urban life with all of its secrets and, and sort of dark underside. And the shadows of the noir are not made by trees. Those are always buildings. It's, it's you know, elevated subway tracks. You know, the kind of classic noir image is all about the city and its lights and its darkness. In the sea, you also have any sea story, and the literature of the sea is enormous. You're dealing, once again, with a pocket of humanity surrounded by existential dread. But in that case, it's created by the elements and the natural world. So as it turned out, that actually there was so much alike about those two genres. And the thing about writing about the sea is that it's always both a real thing, you know, it's, it's, it exists, it's, it's, you can touch it, you can see it, 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 ships sail across it, but it's also just inherently metaphorical. So in a way, it's kind of a writer's dream. Um, and it, I think that the, the aspect of it that was the most rich for me metaphorically in this book is that, you know, Anna's father has disappeared. We don't know why. And so she's, on some level, she's looking to get below the everyday surface of life to try to understand something deeper. And 
in a way, that's what diving is. It's going below the surface of the water and walking at the bottom of it. And so the sea becomes a kind of metaphor for exploration of all sorts and even interpretation. That little paragraph I read about Dexter Stiles, is a, it's a similar kind of thing. He senses another world of connections under the surface of everyday life. And that world of connections is the world of organized crime, which he ends up joining as a teenager because he's so seduced by this glittering subtext. Well, too, when she's under the water in a suit, that is the absolute existential human alone in the noir darkness surrounded by buildings. When we when you were describing those buildings, I was thinking, you know, what's interesting is that even though those buildings in Noir are always in a city and theoretically are filled with people, they don't strike us as that. They're more like man-made cliffs and mountains that are just there to to block you and, and lock you in in a way. Absolutely. They don't feel human. No, they don't. No, they feel like something that's just meant to channel you through whatever... Uh, obstacle course life is going to offer. Yeah. And I think there's a reason that so much, um, not just literature, but films and, and all kinds of different genres have been drawn to these kind of worlds because the stakes immediately feel high. I mean, in a sea story, the question of life or death is always on the table. Sure, even yeah, if that boat sinks, you're, exactly. you're gone. And in a way, that's also true in the noir. Even if we don't know what we're dreading exactly, it feels like something bad could happen all the time. We can just feel it because of those cliff-like, sort of inhuman, encroaching shadows. Now, one of the things I thought you did really well in this book that is... I mean, makes this book feel very contemporary, was that you illuminated the inner life and the racism that was rampant in that time and the way people referred to one another. But it was a, a racism that is in many ways kind of foreign and different to us because uh, it, the, at that point in time, the Irish were seen practically as another race. It's Italian. I mean, that's not the way it works exactly right now. So I thought that was a really interesting way to bring that kind of thought process home, the way that that how that makes us feel uncomfortable. Well, one thing again, you know, this this was so clear even during those five years of research that were long before I wrote, and which also included reading a lot of fiction. By the way, it was mm -hmm. very very helpful to read fiction of that time because so much is so many of the textures of of daily life, the things people take for granted, cultural memories, and you know, nostalgia, longing. A lot of that is very present in fiction, so I find it very helpful. Race and ethnicity were addressed very directly at that time, and people were identified by other people front and center by their ethnicity, whatever that might be. And that's very, you know, that is not PC, to put it in, in, in more um, contemporary terms. And I found it very strange to to think about doing that and to do it at first. I, I know when my husband... Been, yeah, it must have been odd to write like that. It felt weird. I mean, my husband is Jewish, and mm. when he read the, a, a complete draft for the first time, he was sort of startled to find that I used... I refer, had someone refer to someone else as a Shylock in one of the early chapters. He had, someone has to get money from the Shylock. Well, that's 
a Jewish slur. And he was like, what? But then as he kept reading, he realized, you know, that, that you know, people refer to Irish people as mix, Italians as wops, uh, African-Americans, Negroes, and so on. I mean, that is simply how people talked. And to, to not do that would be anachronistic. Um, what, but the interesting thing is there was a particular painter I interviewed a lot, one of my New Yorkers with a great memory, a guy named Alfred Leslie, who is still alive, working in his 80s, doing great. He was one of the abstract expressionists. His work is at MoMA. And he w um, told me that he thought people were less actually racist at that time because they didn't try to conceal their awareness of each other's ethnicity. He felt that there was a neutralizing effect of simply identifying each other in that way. Now, I can't speak to that. I don't know. He's Jewish. Mm -hmm. um, and he, he feel, he, his point was that he felt people were actually more racist now as we try to pretend we are unaware of race <laughs> and it doesn't matter um, when, no one, when everyone knows that that's not really true. One other thing about race, though, that was really... Well, first of all, the Irish were very racist. And, I, you know, I was... That, that was clear. The Irish were racist. They regarded the Italians as another race, mm -hmm. <laughs> very inferior to themselves. What a lot of all of this jostling and, and um, you know, finger-pointing was really about was economic insecurity. Mm -hmm. um, you know, people who were threatening to others were perceived as less than, than they were. But one thing that was interesting was that in the merchant marine, in, mer in the world of merchant sailing, there, a lot of this was, the world of merchant sailing was progressive in ways that mainstream American society was not. Marginal people, like homosexuals, people with criminal records, people with substance issues, were drawn to merchant sailing because it was a pretty accepting environment in which people just had to contend with each other. Men, I should say, because it really was all men. And it was a very international group in which, say, white men would customarily work under Negroes, as black people were called, or just people from other countries, people of color from other countries, say, China or Mexico or whatever. And so that, as I got into learning about the world of merchant sailing, I became fascinated by this because it really was this kind of rich environment in which people of all sorts were forced to work harmoniously together. They had to, because once again, there's an existential threat around them. You, you know, <laughs> discord on a ship is a really serious matter. Oh yeah. Um, and the chain of command is very important. So, um, so that became really interesting. And I ended up working with that very directly in, in the, in the, you know, sea portion of this book. Um, and I read a study of merchant sailors that was from the 30s that determined that only about 12% of them even had permanent addresses. So it was a, a really transient, even largely homeless population that had found a kind of, uh, had found a sort of uh, a way of functioning together. Then when the war began, uh, men, a lot of people became merchant sailors. For example, the musician Woody Guthrie, and one of the guys he sailed with wrote a fantastic memoir called Woody, Cisco and Me, which is about <laughs> Woody Guthrie trying to be, I mean, he was not a great sailor, let's just say. Um, 
But a lot of guys joined, did this to avoid the army, which is a sort of a terrible irony because, in fact, these merchant ships were sitting ducks for the U-boats. They were targeted all the time because the, the Germans could, or the Japanese to a lesser degree, they could get rid of all this war material that could, would never reach its destination. And the merchant, merchant sailing lost more men proportionately than any of the other armed services. Wow. Well, you know, one of the things I, I thought that you did a, a wonderful job of in the book was to, to make that stuff fun. And for the noir, all the noir feel of this book, it's fun to read because it's really a, a wonderful country to explore. And I think this gets back to what you were saying too before, that you had to surprise yourself to keep going at, in the plot. Yeah, I mean, if it's not, if I'm not having fun, if they, for example, if my stuff is not funny, there's a problem. Like humor, I mean, everyone's different. Not Mm -hmm. every writer is like this, but if I'm really being myself on the page, there is a fair amount of humor, some absurdity. I like extremes. I like it when I can sort of push situations to extremes. And I found it very hard to do that in these milieus for a really long time. And I lost faith in the book, and I really thought about abandoning it because I felt like there was a kind of stiffness, a sort of, I guess an analogy would be knowing a language well enough to converse, but not well enough to be yourself, Mm. um, that rendered me sort of like very stiff. It wasn't funny. I felt like I was just sort of getting through it, but I wasn't, that the fun of it wasn't happening. I didn't feel loose enough. Uh-huh. I didn't feel authoritative enough. And I, I just didn't feel like me. I couldn't move <laughs> around. And so I thought, well, this is just not going to do. I mean, I'm not going to publish a book that, that has this feeling. Um, but what I found was that as I continue to just doggedly research and, and rewrite using you know very detailed outlines that I create to try to figure out what the work is and and how to make it better. There came a point that I've experienced many times as a journalist on a smaller scale when almost all of a sudden I just kind of got it. I felt like, and maybe that's how fluency happens. I'm Uh unfortunately not fluent enough in another (laughs) language to tell you, but I suddenly felt like I could just do it. I could just be there. And then I have to say the payoff was just amazing. It was such a joy. It was such a, it was such a transcendent feeling of being lifted out of the world I know that I want to write another historical novel just to have that feeling again. Do you have plans to write another historical novel? I would like to write one set in New York in the 19th century. I'd like to go further back. We'll see. It's definitely a ways away, mm-hmm. but I, I, I do think that would be a lot of fun. I, I, in a, I'd love to write about this period again because I want to, I want to be back in it. But I don't think I think this this is my book about this period. I don't think there's going to be another one, much as I love the thought of it. <laughs> now, uh, one of the things about this book is it, it's very cinematic, and I. So I'm wondering now, has this been an option for the movies? I. It has been optioned. Scott Rudin optioned it. I have no idea what has resulted from that. Um, and, you know, options come and go. I've learned yeah. that the hard way. So I hope. I mean, he would be, he, if anyone can do a good job, he's the man. But he also, I think, has many projects, and I'm not quite sure what's happening. I, it is a lot. I think in some ways it would be easier 
to make into a film than some of my books because it is a more straightforwardly told story mm -hmm. than a lot of mine are. Now, uh, one of the things that I, I thought about this book that worked really well, I really like the, the family relationships in it and the way that people who weren't in families came to family-like relationships. So could you talk about that kind of... Yeah. Family and, and maybe, does that have something to do with the water? Well, let's see. I'm just going to kind of see what comes to mind thinking about that. I From the very beginning, I knew that Anna's immediate family would be important. As I said, I had a sense of her, you know, a shadowy sense of a father. Um, and and I wondered right away, I thought, okay, but I want to I wanna hold on to this noir feeling. Can I include domesticity? in a noir story. I really wondered, because I was thinking, I couldn't think of many examples of that. This is one. <laughs> and I thought, well, there's got to be a way. I mean, if you get, if you penetrate those shadows, there have to be families. So, mm -hmm. so I was thinking about family right from the start, but there are, there are problems in Anna's family, and her family disintegrates. I don't think it's giving too much away to say that her family disintegrates fairly quickly in the sense that the father seems to have abandoned the family. He mm -hmm. disappears without explanation. Um, and so what, and, and as I said, you know, I, I, there, there's so much work in this book. There's a tremendous amount about oh, yeah. people at work and what, what seems to happen in these work situations is that they create alternate families. They mm -hmm. develop, they develop relationships that are familial in their feeling. And that in a way was the insight I had being dressed in the Mark V by the tenders, the, the, the kind of intimacy that I felt at first seemed uncomfortable because immediately you think intimacy, whoa, wait, I don't know these people. <laughs> but, but, but domestic life is also intimate in, mm -hmm. a, in a different kind of familial way. And that was what I felt it being dressed ultimately in, the, in that suit. So I guess in the world of work where so much of this book takes place, whether it's criminal life, um, you know, shipbuilding, deep sea diving, merchant sailing, there familial relationships developed in all those places. And I think in a way we do have familial relationships in the workplace. I say that as someone who kind of works alone, but I know in, in my day jobs, you know, in the many years when I had them, some of the tensions, you know, what people talk about, you know, corporate politics, in some ways that those are about the kinds of rivalries, problems with authority, questions of who's getting what, that you see in family life as well. Mm -hmm. So I guess in some ways I, I start with a with a, a nuclear family, and then when that fragments for various reasons, I ended up exploring these family relationships in in various work environments. The new book by Jennifer Egan is Manhattan Beach. Thank you for joining me, Jennifer. It is a pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.